0: James Walker and welcome to Real Talk Real People. This is the podcast that turns the mic over to everyday people to hear what they have to say about the issues and problems we face as a society. Hello folks and thank you for joining us this week, I hope everyone is staying home and staying safe. The conversation today is about the thousands of people that we have locked up in Connecticut prisons and folks with COVID-19 that is a serious problem. Health officials say we must safe. Uh, we must practice safe distancing, six feet away. We have to consistently wash our hands. We have to wear gloves and masks. Well, you can't do that in prison, and we have about 12,000 people who are currently behind bars. So, there's a problem because some of them have tested positive for. The coronavirus and you know we already have one person who has passed away from it so it really is something that really needs attention and it needs attention right now but the question is what are we going to do about it you know should we release them well they uh, let's be realistic here they are men and women who have committed crime they are behind bars for a reason But we are a compassionate society. None of these people have been sentenced to death. So something has to be done. My guests today are Raisha Bevins and Barbara Fair. Both of them are New Haven residents. And we're going to get this conversation going with Raisha.
1: There are tons of different ways that the governor, through his executive authority, could actually decarcerate. Um, certain populations in prison, he could release people um, that are reaching their maximum sentences in 30 days. There's over 3,000 people incarcerated in Connecticut pre-trial who are presumed to be innocent. You know, they, they haven't had a trial. They haven't been convicted of a crime. Those people could also be looked at. Looked at. And there are also a little over 5,000 people in Connecticut who are currently eligible for pardon um, and parole. And uh, there's also 2,000, a little bit over 2,000 uh, people who also are, are incarcerated on technical invi- violations. And people can be incarcerated on technical vi- violations um, for as much as missing an appointment with their probation officer. So, you know, public health officials and epidemiologists have just, said that decarceration is the only certain way to really avoid COVID-19 from becoming a death sentence in prison. And, you know, if you've been watching the the national news coverage, recently California released um, close to 3,500 people, right, just in the interest of saving people's lives um, because jails and prisons across the nation, including here in Connecticut, are just a petri dish um, for infection. You know, people are in close quarters. Um, people can't social distance because of the nature of prison. In um, and, and New York right now, currently in Rikers, um, the infection rate in Rikers is 85% higher than the national rate. And it's seven times higher than the rate of infection in New York City currently. No. So that just, yeah, goes to show like what actually can happen. Um, you know, and it's it's really, you know, it's urgent. And uh, the governor has chosen not to decarcerate uh, these populations now, right now.
0: You are a- advocating, I know, on on um, behalf of your brother. I do know that um, he is incarcerated. And you're also part of a, a group, am I correct?
1: Yes, I have been advocating for my brother, uh, Joshua, who's been incarcerated three years pre-trial. And obviously any type of decarceration you know, could benefit him um, as as well as the thousands of other other people that are in similar situations. Um, I've been participating as an advocate with uh, Stop Solitary Connecticut. We are a uh, legislative um, steering committee that has been advocating for the elimination of solitary confinement in Connecticut um, prior to COVID-19. We had a bill that had been sponsored by Jerry Lumfield. To um, really eliminate the use of solitary confinement in Connecticut as punishment, um, which you know, according to international law, is actually uh, deemed torture. You know, if you if you have people in solitary confinement um, beyond fourteen days, which does happen in Connecticut, so that's um, our primary mission, and we've chosen to focus also on decarceration um, as well as not using solitary confinement. Um, to medically isolate uh, people in Connecticut um, who test positive with COVID-19 who are incarcerated. And we're not clear right now that the Department of Corrections is using medical isolation versus solitary confinement. So that is something else we are urging the Department of Corrections to be transparent about and to stop.
0: Now, when you talk about releasing um, prisoners, a lot of people are very uncomfortable with that because Mm -hmm. for the most part, The men and women who have been arrested and and put behind bars did something to to deserve being put behind bars. So what do you say to people when you say, hey, you have got to let these people out because of COVID-19? Exactly what do you mean when you say release the prisoners? Are you saying that they should not be held accountable for what they... For what they did or how do you rectify that with the public how do you rectify allowing the people who committed a crime out of out of jail uh, during this crisis what happens then do they just get away with whatever they've been charged with you're listening to real talk real people the podcast that turns the mic over to everyday people and we're talking with Raisha, and we will be hearing from Barbara. She'll join us here in just a moment. But I wanted to give Raisha uh, a chance to explain who should be released from prison and why.
1: Thank you for asking that question. So I want to be clear that the request to decarcerate as many people as possible is not a request to abandon justice and accountability. Um, If you listen to the groups of people that I mentioned could easily be looked at for decarceration, um, those are groups of people that, by and large, have served the majority of their sentence. Um, For example, there's a little over 2,000 people that, by the end of 2020, um, would have reached their maximum sentence. Um, The group of people that are eligible for pardons pardons and parole, those are groups that have already served the majority of their sentence. And the groups of people that are pre-trial, I mean, it's actually unconstitutional to you know give someone a bail that they can't afford. Our bail system is really designed to to guarantee that people show up to, to court, and instead it's been used to preemptively basically deem people guilty. So what our group is really standing for is that restorative justice. Um, and, and rehabilitation, which is something we've been fighting for prior to this crisis, he implemented.
0: Let's get Barbara into this conversation because solitary confinement is a problem. And um, if you listen to Barbara, she's just very straightforward about it, uh, th- you know, telling us that the people who came up with this solitary confinement is really is just a product of sadistic thinking. And to get a feeling of, of what she is talking about, imagine that you're just sitting in your bathroom. and industry according to industry standards most bathrooms are nine by five in in normal apartments and in small homes While a cell is six by eight so if you're in that bathroom just imagine that you know with the door closed you can't leave if you have shown any symptoms for the coronavirus you are going to be confined in solitary isolation that's a problem, folks. Imagine yourself in a space the size of your bathroom and you can't leave. You can't watch TV. You can't listen to the radio. I mean, I, I just find this a, a, a bit barbaric, even though I understand that the state has to do something to stop the spread. You just can't do that. That is just torturous, um, as far as I'm concerned. And, you know, and I think you'll understand that after hearing what Barbara has to say.
2: Well, I came into this work um, around solitary confinement, Um, it's been about 30 years ago, at least 20. Uh, My son was uh, placed in Northern at the the day he turned 17, Um, and so that was, like I said, over 20 years ago, and to this day he continues to suffer. Uh, Many people who've been in those places say that your mental health deteriorates and, and you may never be the same again. I know my son has never been the same again. And so when that kind of work came to Connecticut, I immediately came on board uh, because I had been doing that kind of work with uh, people across the nation um, before my son ever ended up there. And so um, in 2017, I, came together with some Yale students and we started working on how do we uh, close in solitary solitary confinement in Connecticut, which our focus would be on on Northern. Northern is a facility um, in uh, summers, it's called the control unit. And it was designed by what I consider a sadistic person because to think of putting somebody in a little tight space like that, that's the size of a closet or a bathroom, And put them in there with nothing, nothing, no, no person to interact with, um, no TV, radio, just, just space. And the space, uh, according to people who've been there at Northern, is they said it's dark and dingy. You feel like you're underground. It's filthy. um, The showers are smeared with urine, uh, feces, and blood from people who have committed suicide. And they suffer. They said that you suffer um, mental illness. Uh, you come out of there with panic attacks, anxieties, PTSD, and many are highly medicated, and so it's just a place of just cruelty. And so we had a, ju- a federal judge; his name is Underhill. Um, uh, file, someone had filed a lawsuit about the conditions in Northern, and he ruled that that was a um, it was unconstitutional place, and that. Um, Department of Corrections had to make some changes because it was cruel and inhumane. Um, not really sure where that has gone, but the United Nations, the Special Repertoire on uh, Torture, in February um, mentioned Connecticut prisons, uh, uh, notably Northern, as a place um, that was considered torture.
0: It's it's my understanding that what is happening now is they are taking prisoners who show. Symptoms, and they are putting them in isolation at at Northern, and but the, yes. the real problem with that is that they're in these small cells. And can you explain to me uh, why that is a problem? I, I understand why it's a problem, but can you explain to our <laughs> listeners why that is a problem?
2: Um, it, it's it's twofold, really, be because there, anyone who just shows symptoms, they're sending to Northern. And so you have people who are feeling, experiencing symptoms, because I actually spoke to one, that one man. And because the thought of going to Northern, it was unbearable, he would not admit that he had any symptoms. So you have people who are probably in prison right now who are ill, but they won't reveal it because they don't want to go to Northern. And Northern, um, I'm a, I'm also a licensed clinical social worker, so I think about uh, how uh, a place like Northern breeds mental illness, and so to put someone in there that's already ill in a place like that, I I can't understand the mindset of people who would even consider that. Um, so that's the the biggest problem I have with it, and um and we had the death already, our first death on April fourteenth. Of this man from Bridgeport, his name is Carlos uh, De Leon. He he became ill and and you know went through the steps and ended up in the hospital on on intensive care and died. And you really don't even hear the governor or the commissioner even talking about it. It's like he was it was a disposable life. And 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 the thing about it, he could have been released because he was already approved to be released. I think like last month. And because of the slow process of releasing people, that's why he ended up sick. Just like this young man I was talking to yesterday, he was supposed to have been released March 23rd. And now he's sick. He could never have, he never would have gotten sick if they had released him on the date that he was approved.
0: Now, the governor has released, uh, I think it's 700 men. Uh, What do you have to say about that? That's really a,
2: like a deceptive um, comment when he says that, because what he did was release people that were already approved for release anyway. There are still thousands that are approved for release that haven't gotten released. But these people, when they get to the end of the sentence, he's going to release them. And it's not out of a response to the COVID because the governor made it clear from the start. He put his foot down. He's never lifted his foot up off it. He said they will not be a, uh, early prisoner release. And so it's kind of deceptive to say, oh, we've released 700 people. You release people who are going to be released regardless of the pandemic. And soon you'll see more people being released, and it's only because they're at the end of their sentence, not because the governor is trying to respond in a compassionate manner to this virus that's ravaging our prison. I don't think any of these people were supposed to get a death sentence for whatever crime they committed. And we're talking about, I'm not talking about release everybody. I'm talking about releasing people that were going to be released anyway within the next 30, 60 days. So why hold them in there and and, and, uh, leave them to get infected and possibly die? Why? It, It just makes no kind of sense to me. Like I said, it brings up um, um, the, the pictures of Katrina where prisoners were left in their cells to die and drown. And, I mean, what kind of a society does something like that? What kind of society is okay with that kind of thought process that, well, they committed a crime, so if they end up getting sick and dying, that's part of the sentence. It's not part
0: of the sentence. And there is no arguing with that. It is a serious subject, folks. And, you know none of these men and women and I'll say this again none of them have been sentenced to death and Connecticut abolished the death sentence in 2012 so really with our knowledge of covid-19 and how it spreads i think you know we have a serious question to um, ask ourselves and it's a question that I posed in my Sunday column in Hearst Connecticut newspapers about this issue and the question is very simple are we killers or are we saviors? Thanks for joining us this week, folks. I want to thank Barbara and Raisha for being my guests. And I urge you to remember, stay home and stay safe. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to Real Talk, Real People. If you would like to be on the show, have a comment about the show, or perhaps you have an idea that the show should explore, give us a call at 203-605-1859 or email us at realtalkrealpeoplect at gmail.com. And remember, start your Sundays with my column in Hearst, Connecticut newspapers statewide and start your Mondays right here at Real Talk, Real People. Have a good week, folks. We'll talk again next week.